Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 14 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hello Hypnosis friends and a warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again, in my own highly biased opinion, I think I have a super morbidly fat sensation of a show lined up for you today. In a short while, I'll be sharing with you an interview with the hypnotherapist, businesswoman and good friend of mine, Lindsay Shepherd. Then I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis has featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media, but also comment on some of the content of those media stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest Lindsay Shepherd this week. I shall be exploring Lindsay's experiences and approaches in her therapy rooms and upon a TV project where she's been working with people classified as being super morbidly obese. We'll round things off with this week's Hypnosis Factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. This podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's hypnosisweekly with a hyphen in the middle.com. You can add your thoughts, comments, and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. So first of all today is this week's interview. I'm absolutely delighted to be welcoming Lindsay Shepherd to Hypnosis Weekly for a number of reasons. Firstly, Lindsay represents the field of hypnosis and hypnotherapy incredibly well. She is someone that I admire for the way that she runs her business. Not only does she represent the field of hypnotherapy by being a business award finalist recently, she runs business development groups for therapists and advises individual therapists on how to market themselves effectively and develop their own businesses, which is no mean feat, especially in this recent economic climate. Lindsay also inspired me in recent times with her own journey as she decided to literally walk her talk. She lost several stone in weight, walking half marathons and taking part in 5k running races, and it made her a great role model for a great many. Lindsay recently delivered a presentation at a group I run, whereby she spoke about her recent experiences working with the super morbidly obese, and we'll get onto that later on in today's episode. For now, get comfy my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea and enjoy this week's interview. So, as I've been discussing, I'm delighted to have with me the one and only Lindsay Shepherd. Welcome to Hypnosis Weekly, Lindsay. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, 
So, so let's let's get straight to it. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into this field, um, um, and how have you then arrived and evolved to to where you are now with your career? I started off um, after I left full time education university. I had no idea what I wanted to do. So, as you do, I joined the police force, the Metropolitan yes. Police Force, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And it was a time, sort of late 70s, where the Sex Discrimination Act had only just come in. Yeah. So, it, it was really quite new to have women police officers doing out on the beat and doing what male police officers used to do. Yeah. And I really enjoyed it. Um, but I did come to a, a time when I thought, you know, enough's enough, really. And when I left the police force, I went into an advertising agency, originally to help someone for two weeks. I stayed for two years because I enjoyed it so much. Yes. <laughs> and I carried on um, working in the advertising industry. So that was making television adverts, radio ads, print ads, virtually anything. So mm. really two quite different things. Yeah. But, you know, actually I think they're very similar in some ways because in both jobs... I had to get people to do something um, in the police force, perhaps something they didn't want to do, yeah. or think about things in a different way, or get evidence from someone to interview someone. Hmm. And in advertising, it was really similar because I was also getting people to think about things in a different way. In this case, it was a product. So I was selling something, but I was using language and using, I suppose, almost getting into their minds. Yeah. And I became absolutely fascinated about how we use language in particular, how to do things. And at the time I was in the police, there was a lot of um, terrorist IRA activity. So we were very often trying to get people off the streets in a hurry. And you have to move people quickly. And using language was a way to do it. You know, yeah. yelling the word now rather than please will you move. <laughs> yeah. The subtleties of using language. So I started to look at um, NLP, because that's really what was, was quite a big thing at the time, really, late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. Um, I was really interested in that. And I realized that um, an awful lot of the things in NLP were leading me to hypnosis. Yeah. So I became very interested in hypnosis. At the time, I had no idea what hypnosis was. Um, and I just really liked the concept. And I realized that a lot of the things I was already doing were th already the things that we, I now do in hypnosis. For yeah. instance, you know, if I pulled someone up on a speed, you know, speeding in their car, I would say, do you know highway code? Do you know what the speed limit is of this road? So basically I was doing a yes set. And I didn't know mm. I was doing mm. that. <laughs> so we, we do these things all the time. Yeah. Um, and then eventually, um, I was actually injured in an IRA bomb attack in Knightsbridge. And um, at the time, we, didn't, we weren't offered any hypnosis, any counselling. And anyway, I very much doubt we would have gone for it because we were all roughy-tuffy police officers. <laughs> I, yeah, sure. I, I wouldn't have done it. I really wouldn't have done it. But I did actually suffer a little bit of flashback after the 7-7 um, attacks in London. Right. And I started to look at... Um, Hypnosis for myself, sort of meditation or something that would help me become calmer in certain situations. Mm. And by that time, um, I'd moved on to advertising just after that. And in advertising, you get made redundant quite a lot. Um, I eventually left my last advertising job with a big check and I decided I was going to do some proper hypnosis training, really for my own interest. I had yeah. no intention at the time of becoming a hypnotherapist. It was just something that I was incredibly interested in, especially the way that we use language. Yeah. 
love language. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that comes through in a lot of your work as well that we'll, we'll explore later on. Thank you. Yes, it, it's just it's just fascinating how we can do it, isn't it? Mm. So I, I looked around um, for training. I, I live in Bournemouth, as you know, quite near you. Yeah. And, and there were a few. There are quite a few schools in Bournemouth at the time. Um, but I'm very pragmatic. You know, I don't like all the fancy stuff and you know angels and past lives and things like that. It's it's not for me. Um, which led me to you, Adam. Great, 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 great. And, and and of course there are no fan there is no fancy stuff here. There's no fancy stuff whatsoever. <laughs> no fancy stuff at all. It's, it was the pragmatism really. I, yeah. I don't like um it, it's just not me. And I couldn't sit through something thinking, What? What are you on about? I don't get that. <laughs> Yeah, and I'd have to say something. I, I probably would have been quite a disruptive student, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I wasn't with you. <laughs> no, no, absolutely no, not, not at all. Um, but I, as I say, I still didn't intend to become a therapist. Mm. I just wanted to sort of see if it would work with with my work and maybe see how it led. But within about three days of the course, I knew that this is actually what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I found that really interesting because I think a lot of other people on the course were the other way around. That's what they wanted to do, but maybe thought, oh, no, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's, sorry, go. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, and, and I mean, as you've, as you've kind of built your career, I mean, you can tell us a bit more about that. Did, did you find yourself drawing upon um, the fact that you had these skills that you'd um, developed in the police and, of course, the skills that you developed within your roles in, in advertising? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, I'm quite good, well, I think I'm very good, <laughs> to blow my own trumpet, at getting information from people. Mm. Um, because you can draw it out without people actually realising that that information is being drawn out. Mm. Um, I am empathetic, but I can also be quite tough with someone as well. I, mm. I tend to know if someone's not telling me the truth. You, you just get a feeling for that. Mm. So that that's where I get from the police, and and certainly from my advertising and, and marketing background, I know how to run a business. Mm. Mm. <laughs> well, that's that, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's really important, and I think it's really important for me to highlight that, you know, because we're not really gonna, um, and we're not gonna be discussing that within our discussion. Um, but it's one of the things that 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 I that I would have liked to have discussed in some depth with you because you know one of the areas that you've really thrived in has been not only the development of your own business as a hypnotherapist but also aiding and um, developing careers of, of other hypnotherapists that perhaps have been been a bit wanting and I know in the embryonic phases of my own career I was highly inept and lacking or well, bereft of entrepreneurial skills, for example, and marketing and business development was very much a steep learning curve for me. Um, um, whereas you, you found a way to really draw upon all of that stuff. Yeah, I think it would be foolish not to use any of the skills that you have. And I, I do think some people do that. They think that I'm in a completely different business. So anything else I've learned doing anything else is, isn't isn't useful anymore but it absolutely mm. is and I was able to to plan because part of my role in advertising I was production so I made things happen I sat between the creatives and the the people who the account the business and I was the one that actually made things happen sort of mm. the backside kicker which I'm sure you'd be surprised to hear <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I got on with it and I was almost planning my well I was planning my business just before I qualified so that virtually the minute I qualified I was able to just set it up and get going with no hanging about mm. Mm. I really thought carefully about it. 
and and it's gone well. And I, you know, I did. I was off and running pretty much as soon as I set my website up, and as soon as I started working on it. Yeah, and and and, and 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 where you are at now is someone who is um, a busy, thriving, flourishing hypnotherapist. Yes. Um, um, and so in recent years, you know, you've been you've been actively, you know, you actively continue to develop your business, don't you? And um, um, you're at a place where you you, you see plenty of clients, um, um, which is you know, a, a place that a lot of hypnotherapists aspire to be at. Yes, it, it is. But it, I, I keep moving. I'm always looking and seeing if there is anything else to do, if, there's the ne- if there is the next thing. Mm. I, I investigate. And, and that also comes from, you know, the police as well. We, I look for the evidence of what's going to work, what, what might not work, what's worth trying. Mm. I don't stand still, both in my hypnosis work and development of that, but my business in particular. Something that I've perceived and watched you do over the years as well. Something I was, uh, I I really notice a lot in Anthony Jacquin, and that we discussed when I I was interviewing him for his episode, um, is the fact that you know you you get yourself out there, don't you? And yes. you go and you you go to networking events and you go to social events and you represent yourself and your business face to face very often. In, in a wide number of different circles. Um, can you just tell us a, a little bit about that? I like going out and networking. I know it frightens some people. Mm. I go to all sorts of groups. I tend to stick to more women's groups yeah. because it, it sort of fits with, with my business model, but I, it's not exclusive to women's groups. Um, I talk to groups about um, what hypnosis is, or how I perceive it, how you can use it. And I, I walk my walk. I think that's the important thing. We yeah. don't have to have perfect lives, but I don't go around saying, oh, my God, I'm so busy. You know, if I tell someone I'm really busy, it's, I'm busy, and that's fantastic, isn't it? Mm. Um, it it's, it's about walking the walk and being there. So that when people meet me, they remember me. Um, I might do something, some phenomena to show them, or I talk to them about how I could help help them. Right? No, it's always about how I can help them and their businesses if they have a business, not how they can help me. That's that comes later. Yeah. Um, so that if they do ever need a hypnotherapist or they know someone who would need a hypnotherapist, it's me that they think of first. Yeah, they don't absolutely. Don't looking anywhere else. They think of me. Yeah, yeah. You're at the forefront of their mind. Absolutely. Yes, um, I'm that lady, and um, I'll give her a call. Great, great. We'll, we'll, we'll hopefully get a chance to explore a little bit more of that. Um, um, you mentioned that you give talks about what hypnosis is and, and so on. Um, um, what do you say then? Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what, how, what is your definition of hypnosis or your kind of working definition? How do you explain hypnosis to clients and others? And, and, um, and how did you arrive at that definition? It's taken me quite a lot of thinking, actually, to arrive at the definition. Um, I, did, I didn't ever really believe in the subconscious mind, but I, I've looked at it and I keep mm. thinking, well, is, is there a subconscious mind? You know, in my opinion, I don't think there's any proof that there is, and I don't like the idea. I, again, I like people to take responsibility for things, and yeah. I think if you think that there is something else that's running you, then, then you can't believe in the subconscious mind. I am a great fan of Clark L. Hull. Yeah. Apart from the fact he has a really cool name. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I'm, a, I'm a massive fan of his. He's fantastic. I love him. I wish I could have met him. 
Um, I, I really take his definition that whatever assumes hypnosis actually creates hypnosis. Yeah. If, if you act like you are that hypnotized person. It's difficult to explain sometimes because people don't really get it um, and they're frightened of it, I think, hypnosis. So I sometimes like to say it's like a focused attention. Yeah. That I don't want people falling asleep, but to stay with me. Yeah. And maybe even acting as if they are hypnotized or what they think a hypnotized person would be like. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, like, like, like elements of the kind of social, social role of, of a hypnotized subject. Yes, absolutely. Because. Mm. Will bring up the fact about stage hypnosis, won't they? And they'll say, "Oh, yeah, but will you do this? Will you do that? Will you make me clap like a chicken?" Uh, I tend to say, "No, I prefer to make you bark like a dog." Yeah, yeah, quite <laughs> um, right. But it, it's, I, it, I do use that to a certain extent that it is a sort of role play in a way mm. that people are truly hypnotised, but they are playing a role as well. Mm. Um, I think it's about proper education of your client, and I tell them that it's a collaborative process. It's not something I'm doing to them. Mm. Um, I can't, I'm not going to zap them and everything's going to change in their world. Um, they engage with me and they take responsibility. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you, you know, um, um, how have you arrived at that? Um, can you tell us about some of the, some of the uh, influences for you? Um, um, are there any books and authors that have taught you more that stand out? Um, 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 are there any teachers that have been more influential upon you? And um, um, just just talk to us a little bit about uh, the things that have influenced and fashioned your th this stance that you have. I'm very influenced by Emil Coué and the auto suggestion. Great. I think that's something. I went to a girls' school, and uh, we used to do all of that. You know, I must and must improve my bust, and I'm getting better <laughs> every day. And, and when you look, when you actually learn about things, you think, oh, really? That was going yeah. on a long time before we thought of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like the auto suggestion and, and constantly reminding yourself that you can do things. Yeah. Um, and his effort error. I probably talk to people every week about how the effort error happens. That yeah. we try so hard to do things that we sometimes screw up. Yeah. Um, focused attention and, and the reversed effects, you know, the same thing as effort error. Um, Clark L. Hull is obviously someone that influences me a lot. Um, yeah. I, I love his book. Um, mm hypnosis and suggestibility it's got little diagrams and yeah. everything it's wonderful well, one of the first um one of the first real um, um sort of bodies of research was contained within that book um you know um and and so it's it's a really important contribution and i think you know anyone that wants a moderately academic perspective um that's something which ought to be in their their repertoire and you know that they ought to be aware of it so i'm really pleased to to speak to a guest that, that highlights such I think he's amazing. In fact, there's a quote that um, you'll probably like that I took from one of these um, chapters, hypnosis regarded as a habit. Mm. And he says, clearly hypnotic susceptibility is greatly facilitated by practice. It's a remarkable and an interesting commentary on the tardy scientific development of hypnotism that this striking and well-known phenomena aroused the experimental curiosity of no one for at least 100 years. Mm. Not much has changed, is it? No, I love that. Yeah, love that. Really love that. Thank that. you. <coughs> um, Bern, Bernheim, I, I like. Yeah. A, a lot because of his sort of not abandoning trance. I don't like the concept of trance, that you're in a trance. Yeah. It's just a personal opinion. Mm -hmm. um, Irving Kirsch, I don't think we can ignore his work. Even though um, he thinks that we should be medically trained to work with a lot of things, I, I don't think we could ignore what he's done for hypnosis. 
No, absolutely. Um, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, I'm really pleased you mentioned him because, um, you know, I, I speak at, I speak at conferences and, and run groups and things, you know, and, and, um, um, I'm amazed that this man, Irving Kirsch, who has contributed more research to this field than any other individual, um, um, you know, that, that, that so many, and I'd even go as far as to say the majority of frontline hypnotherapists aren't even aware of him um, or recognise what recognize his name. I, I would think so, yes. I, I've mentioned it to quite a few people and they have no idea who he is. No, no. So I, I'm really pleased to hear you mention that and um, hopefully it will encourage more people to go out and explore his contribution. I hope so. Um, Spanos um, influences me, um, particularly because he sees it as a skill skill set that with practice people yeah. can improve. Yeah. Um, and I'm very influenced by Azrin and Nunn. I know they're not um, classic um, hypnosis, but the habit reversal, yeah. which is something that I do a lot of work with, um, and I really like that. And yeah. I, I've never seen any reason to change what they do because no. it works. <laughs> Absolutely, and has such an impressive evidence base to support and, and such high high remission rate of, of habitual symptoms. Um, um, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. It really does. I, most of the work I do with um, habit reversal is around um, trick, trichotillomania. Right. It's, it's fantastic. It really is. And that changes people's lives. Yeah, yeah. So other books that have influenced me, um, I use the, the Heartlands, you know, the textbook for most of your courses, yeah. the Corridge and Hammond. But I, I consider that like a cookbook. Yeah. You can pick things up. <laughs> um, and reality is plastic. I mean, Anthony Jackman's book, it, it's not my style. It's not the type of thing I do, but it's, I like it. It's, it's there if you want to do, if you want to learn some phenomena, if you want to, to get on and do it. And I do use phenomena. Yeah. I use it most of the time with my clients, especially with children. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that's lovely to hear. Um, um, and um, you know, I, yeah, I love that idea of using phenomena with kids you know, and them, um, you know, being lit up as a result and getting excited. Um, it, it's fantastic by what they can do. Exactly, because you can say you're doing this, so you can do that. Yeah, it, it's really cool. And you know, they want to come and see me and learn the next thing. Yeah. And also, I think if a hypno hypnotherapist, hypnotist is ignoring phenomena and is being a bit sniffy about it, that they are wrong because people do ask you, go, go on, do something. And if yeah. you can, or when you can, it's so powerful. It really is. Absolutely. There's nothing worse, in my opinion, than someone, than, than, than someone being, you know, a hypnosis professional being asked to do something and then saying, oh, well, no, hang on. I haven't got the whale music on. I haven't got the reclining chair and you haven't got a blanket on top of you and everything's not exactly perfect and not being able to demonstrate some kind of skill. Um, you know, I can understand that certain circumstances might, may not be appropriate. Um, but, you know, I think that's, you know, certainly in the therapy room, that's, um, that, that's spot on. I'm really pleased to hear that, you know, to convince your clients. Um, yeah, absolute convincers, you know, a hand stick or an eye lock, and you, you've, they're there with you. Yeah, yeah. So, um, um, you know, you've, you've, you've worked with a lot of clients in recent years, Lindsay, I know that. Um, um, with, with clients or within, within, within other environments, tell us about some of the more impressive applications of hypnosis that you've directly witnessed, you know, um, um, or is there anything that you'd consider to be the most impressive application of hypnosis that you have directly witnessed? Um, I, I often think about this. You know, I think the most impressive application of hypnosis is how much you can do with it. 
there is just right. too much, rather than some real fantastic sort of whizzy application. But the, it's the everyday stuff. You know, mm. I know we can do surgery under hypnosis, and, that, and that's amazing. But it's about how we can use teach helps self-hypnosis, use self-hypnosis for ourselves to enhance virtually everything in our life. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, for me, it's about being just this wonderful application that almost fits with everything in your life. You can enhance yeah. the wonderful things and you can, well, turn down the not so good things. You can help yourself. Yeah. You know, I, I use it um, probably most days. I'll set myself up for the day by sitting in the client's chair and just sort of centering myself. That sounds very woo, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so getting myself centered for the day. And depending on what I've been doing, you know, sometimes I work with um, some very unhappy people, as I'm sure you do. And you can't take that home with you, can you? You no. need to wash that from your mind. So I, I use it then. Yeah. Um, but there are times I worked with someone only the other day, actually, who had used hypnosis for many, many years. Um, and he was probably the first client as a hypnotic virtuoso I've ever come across. Yeah. And he was absolutely amazing. And I was almost um, playing with things with him because we were doing a letting go technique. And I was talking about sort of the, the balloon rising, and his hand was rising as well at the same time. Mm. So I'm going to go with that. I'm going to get him to hold his hand and then let go and push it away. And it was just amazing to watch someone who was so good. It, it's a joy to work with people like that. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's not any sort of amazing application. It's the everyday thing that really... Right really excites me yeah 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 the, the, the general the general um, responses that you have on an ongoing basis yes yes and and how that the the delight when people open their eyes and sort of wow I mean quite often they say well that was weird mm, mm. <laughs> well that, that's really interesting you know I'm delighted I'm delighted that you say that um, um, tell me tell me now um, I, you know, I think you were diligent when you set up. The impression that I get was that you were really diligent, and, and some of the things that you've talked about already today, you know, you'd you'd kind of set up your business, just, you know, and got things in place just prior to you you qualifying. And so, you know, you were very diligent, very thorough with the way in which you went about setting yourself up within the field. Um, if you could go back to that time. Um, you know, knowing what you know now, is there anything you'd do differently? Um, and if so, what is that? And would there be any advice um, that the person you are today would give the younger you? And um, perhaps you'd share that advice to any hypnotherapists of today. I think I, I wish I'd become a hypnotherapist sooner, but then I haven't really discovered it. And I wouldn't have had the background that I have. Mm. Um, because certainly you get an awful lot of life experience in the police force and in advertising you get a lot of life experience and yeah. I, I'm glad I've had that but that's not to say that someone younger couldn't do it um, I don't think so I think it's about learning from everybody you possibly can even people that you fundamentally think you disagree with because that makes you look at their stance makes you question it Sometimes I change my mind, other times I don't. Mm. Um, you know, I've learned quite a lot from the stage hypnotists. Mm. When I saw John Chase, I mean, that, again, you know, I, I don't, it's not my cup of tea, stage hypnosis, but I learned about being faster and being confident. Mm. And, and I think take everything from what you possibly, everyone that you possibly can mm. and share. Mm. It, and what I say to, to everybody, 
um, graduating students, everyone that wants to go out, just go out and do it. Don't hang about until you think you're ready. I mean, obviously, make sure you're qualified and suitable to go out and work with clients, but go out and do it. Be mm. confident. Mm. Um, ensure you take some business advice, though, obviously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're running a business, remember that you've got to be professional and, and walk the walk. We don't have to have perfect lives, but we don't need to moan about a lot publicly either. I mean, that's, Absolutely. A, that's a trap that we can fall into. Social media is fantastic, but one has to be careful. You, you really do have to be careful. Yeah. And I, I see so many talented therapists, um, they fall by the wayside because they haven't got the business sense or they don't think, you think you can just set up a website and that's it, people will come to you. It doesn't work that way. No. Um, don't moan about your lot if you're not getting off your backside, really. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, um, I think that's really, really good advice. Um, um, tell me, Lindsay, what are your thoughts about evidence-based approaches to hypnosis? I, I mean, I, I'm guessing listeners will probably have an idea about that based upon you know, the, the influences that you cite and so on. Um, but what are your thoughts about evidence-based approaches? It's essential. It, it really is essential. If we want to dispel all the woo around our profession and and there is isn't there there's a, there's an enormous amount there's a lot of nonsense that's spouted about hypnosis we absolutely have to have proper robust ev evidence to prove efficacy or to prove how useful it can be you know in, in both my previous careers not previous lives I'll say <laughs> <laughs> I obviously had to have proper evidence you know I can't couldn't arrest someone and successfully prosecute without evidence yeah um, and in advertising, you need that statistical evidence, quantitative and qualitative evidence, to make sure that your message is getting through. Um, I just don't understand why some hypnosis professionals are frightened of taking an evidence-based approach. Surely it helps us. Mm. And mm. It, it's really interesting. You know, I, I don't believe in past lives. But if someone is to pr will prove to me properly and robustly that that exists, then I'll accept it. But I'm not going to accept it because someone says, oh, well, I know it does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you, sure. How can you talk to a client and not give them a proper, a proper understanding as, you, as we know it now? It, mm. it wouldn't be fair, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, thanks very much. Lindsay, um, obviously, we're going to talk in some depth more about some of your specific experience with dealing with uh, super morbidly obese clients and some of the projects that you've recently been working on um, um, in that regard. Um, um, for now, where, where can people go to learn more about your work, um, your approach to hypnosis and so on? Um, my website is www.lindsayshepardhypnotherapy.co.uk. Yeah. I'm on Twitter. I love Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, I often am giggling to myself at your your tweets. <laughs> yeah, it's good fun, Twitter. Um, Dorset Hypnosis is my Twitter handle. <laughs> and yeah. my email is Lindsay, and that's L-I-N-D-S-A-Y, <laughs> at lindsayshepherd.co.uk. Great, great. There will be a permanent link to Lindsay's website, her Twitter account, um, and any other references that, that get mentioned in today's edition of Hypnosis Weekly over at this particular episode website. Um, do go and have a look at that. For now, thank you very much indeed, Lindsay. We'll be back in a short while, but thanks for now. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed that interview. Now let's have a look at this week's hypnosis in the news. 
The first story that I wish to highlight this week is entitled, I Loved the Feeling. Hypnobirthing mum says her pain-free labour experience was easy. Now, as the title suggests, this is a story about the hypnobirthing experience of a lady called Julia Buckle, who gave birth to baby Skylar using hypnobirthing techniques and strategies. She says she didn't even feel the normal pain associated with childbirth. She even says that she loved the whole experience. Now, what I really enjoyed about this article was a passage whereby the hypnotherapist is quoted. Uh, the hypnotherapist that helped Julia is quoted. And, um, and she says, we're assisting mothers to put themselves into self-hypnosis and there's certain cues that will help them to do that. She said hypnobirthing was as much a philosophy as a technique taught during birth. And she's quoted as saying, the philosophy is that the mothers and the partners can approach their birth without any fear and they can go into their birth feeling calm and confident. You'll be in a very calm, relaxed state, but at the same time, it's a lucid state. You're very aware of your surroundings and what's going on. And um, she stated, you know, it's becoming more and more accepted all the time. And you know what? It certainly is. I guess all of us hypnosis professionals probably sense that. And um, um, whilst this coverage remains as good and as accurate as this particular article is, I'm certain that hypnobirthing will continue to grow in popularity as it is doing. Now then, our second story this week is entitled the virtual gastric band. Supermarket worker loses six stone after 25 pound hypnosis made her believe her stomach had shrunk. And the subtitles for the story go like this. Became trapped in a cycle of emotional eating after being bullied at school. Would regularly binge on massive portions of fatty foods, reaching 21 stone. Spent a thousand pounds on slimming pills and shakes and was considering surgery. Tried weight loss hypnosis or the virtual gastric band. The 25 minute session aims to trick your brain. Your stomach is smaller. Claims she can now rarely finish a whole meal and no longer craves junk. To her disbelief has now lost six stone and dropped a staggering 10 dress sizes. Well, this is an excellent result, isn't it? Isn't that what we all ought to be saying? A wonderful outcome and I'm happy that hypnosis is portrayed in a successful light. Hypnotic gastric band is a popular process in the media. Um, the sales of Paul McKenna's gastric band app have boosted sales and awareness of many other similar apps, my own included. It is highly successful for some people and many a tabloid testimony demonstrates that. I'm just not sure that it's for everyone all of the time for everyone. For many of my own clients, I'd prefer to equip them with other kinds of coping skills and strategies rather than have them be passively responding to an imaginary gastric band. If there was ever a relapse of any kind, I'd like some clients to feel equipped and capable of dealing with such a relapse. For example, my other issue here is the explanation of hypnosis inherent within the article. The gastric band itself is explained in terms of it convincing the unconscious mind the stomach has shrunk. Now that explanation has clearly worked fine here, but to me it is misleading, as I have protested about in previous episodes of Hypnosis Weekly, and I'm aware of harping on, so I shall desist. 
There's no doubt though, the media coverage, especially in the Daily Mail, that continues to offer this very positive picture of this application of hypnosis. Now, the final story I wanted to mention this week is an interesting one. It's titled, Should First Responders Use Acupuncture and Hypnosis During Disasters? Now, this is actually a blog article on a science blog website, which highlights a review article in Medical Acupuncture Journal. And in Medical Acupuncture Journal, it's um, the article in the review is arguing that first responders should be trained in integrative medicine approaches such as acupuncture, hypnosis and biofeedback to provide adjunctive treatment to help relieve patients' pain and stress. However, the blog article itself that is citing this journal entry is offering up a really facetious response. And they, they write up a really facetious comment in reply to the journal suggestion. The blog author states, Maybe they could teach some yoga and the benefits of organic food during the next earthquake as well. This is annoying because this is a classic non sequitur way to make an argument. Someone who claims to be a science blogger should know that full well because no one has claimed that organic food or yoga would be useful in an emergency or in an earthquake in particular. I think it's wise to consider the real usefulness of the interventions being recommended here. Now, the medical review states, the acupuncture journal review states, these approaches are usually inexpensive and non-toxic. They are inherently low risk. They do not require complicated delivery methods and can be pushed far forward in disaster relief efforts, even when other resources cannot be delivered. Now this is very valid. The authors of the report are not suggesting that hypnosis or acupuncture be used to replace CPR or to patch up a severed limb. However, when it comes to lowering stress, alleviating pain and feeling capable of dealing with certain situations and circumstances, which are all very useful and very valid applications, then surely some serious consideration is worthy for the employment of these modalities. Certainly, it warrants more consideration than the facetious disregard and non-sequitur commentary offered by the blog writer. If I was going to say something equally facetious um, or non-sequitur, I'd say that that blog writer is a dick. Some of the comments underneath the article also are very typical of the challenges that we face in this field and also demonstrates the lack of cohesion of a stance, a unified stance that we have in this field as differing individuals attempt to defend the field of hypnosis in very different ways. It's very interesting. Links to all of these stories are listed under this week's podcast entry on www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next up, we have this week's professional discussion. Lindsay Shepherd has worked extensively with a particular group of people, those categorised as being super morbidly obese. I was fascinated in Lindsay's approach and her role within the comprehensive treatment plan that these people received when she was working with them. So today's professional discussion is exploring just that and do be prepared for some incredibly valuable information. Lindsay's very generous with it. 
I think you'll find this week's discussion insightful. I know I certainly did. So I'm back now with Lindsay Shepherd. Um, a short while ago, here at the support group that, 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 that I run for hypnotherapists in Bournemouth, Lindsay gave a presentation about some of her recent experience. Um, over recent years, Lindsay has worked with um, um, numerous individuals that have been categorised and classified as super morbidly obese. And, you know, quite clearly, these are a collection of people with a specific um, um, specific, specific set of habits and definitely require a specific approach. Um, um, the, the people that were listening and the people that were attending the group that night were fascinated. Um, um, you know, so many people wanted to ask more questions. And um, um, it, it made sense, really, for us to have a good discussion about it here and, and really do our best to inform people with regards to this as, as much as we possibly can. Um, Lindsay's also been working on a project um, that, that, that she can tell us a bit about as well. Um, Lindsay, first up then, perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about the project you're working on, a little bit about your experience, and, um, and just kind of set things and frame them for us before we start delving in. What, what happened is I was working with a client who I originally um, was asked to see because she had agoraphobia. Yeah. Um, and when I actually got to her house, because obviously she couldn't come to me, um, she was an extremely large lady um, and she was actually 37 stones. Okay. Um, so there, there's a little bit more around how I work with her, but we can go back to that. But like a lot of people who are overweight or extremely overweight, she watched a lot of television programs, um, was on YouTube a lot, looking at programs like The Biggest Loser, um, Obesity Year to Save Your Life, those sort of programs. And she was very keen on an American trainer, um, motivational um, expert, who was called Jesse Pavelka. Yeah. And I watched, I, I'd not watched any of his programs. And I watched some of his programs, and apart from the fact he's quite easy on the eye to look at. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, um, I'm usually his name is is uh, prefixed with the word heartthrob. Heartthrob yes, Jesse yes. Pavelka. Yeah, he is rather easy on the eye. <laughs> and I thought, well, he looks a nice little chap. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was very interested in the things that he was saying. Um, very much um, seemed to be connected with the mind. I mean, one of his sayings is very much, take the mind and the body will follow. And yeah. I thought that was a really interesting concept. And not, yeah. and not an awful lot of people actually come out and say. So I contacted him really because I wasn't sure how to work long term with somebody. Um, another remark he'd made is that working with super morbidly obese people, it actually gets harder as you go along, not easier. Um, and I'd, I'd sort of cottoned on to that. So I contacted him and was delighted to receive a reply and asked to come on a day um, that he was working on with a group of um, not all super morbidly obese people, but some, some very large people. Yeah. And I spent the day with him. And because of that, I can't say too much about what we're doing. No. But because of that, um, I've been working with um, a group of ladies. They, they are all ladies, though I gather there are some men on the project. And we're working to become more healthy, to reduce weight, to get the mind in the right place. So it's a whole mentor group. Yeah. Um, I mean, just, just tell me, um, just tell me and those listening, what are we talking about here? When we're talking about super morbidly obese, what does that mean? 
It generally means that someone has a BMI of 50 plus. Now, I know BMI is quite discredited at the moment, but it does stand up when you're really large or really fat. I mean, it doesn't work, obviously, if someone is an athlete, like a rugby player, mm. because the BMI is obviously going to be higher. Um, but in general, if you don't want to use BMI, it's at least 10 stone to lose of your body weight. Right. A, a minimum of 10 stone. But the people I'm working with, they're generally around sort of between 15 and 19 stone to lose. So it's an awful lot of weight. Yeah. It's, it's difficult to say half your body weight because you might be 16 stone and want to lose eight. And But that isn't classed sure. as morbidly obese. It, sure. it really depends. Yeah. So generally, more than ten stones to lose and a BMI of fifty plus. Yeah. So these are these are some these are some big people. These are very very overweight people, and generally, when you're that overweight, you will have some other comorbidities. There's generally diabetes involved, uh, type yeah. two usually, in, invariably. Um, there will be other things. So there might be um, there might be skin issues because our, our skin will stretch. You, you can be huge and your skin will stretch, but your yeah. skin begins to break down um, and you can get all sorts of infections and ulcers. Um, there are some unpleasant things involved in supermorbid obesity. One can't look after one's own personal care, for instance. Yeah. Very yeah. difficult to wash. Um, so that there's a lot around it, um, a lot that affects people's self-esteem, confidence, and mobility. And uh, I'm guessing, therefore, with all of this in mind, as I mentioned in the episode with Gary Turner, for example, um, I'm guessing, therefore, that there's a, a comprehensive gamut of, of of assistance and help that these individuals need. It's not just all in the mind and and it's just you know a hypnotherapist is all you need for example i'm guessing that there's a wide variety of uh, people contributing to a comprehensive treatment plan yes absolutely there's um, usually nutritionalists dietitians depends on where in the program they are um, working with jesse there is actually proper nutritionalists proper nutritional advice um, otherwise um, i have private clients who see dietitians at hospitals which they are very very good but you don't get to see them that often yeah <laughs> so there are nutritionalists um personal trainers or people who specialize in helping supermorbidly obese because obviously a personal trainer you can't go around swinging kettlebells or running marathons when you're 30 stone can you no. simply moving in movement rather than exercise yeah people get frightened by the word exercise so if you use the move, word movement again changing language so there, there's a whole gamut of people doctors yeah. all sorts of people and it's I, interesting I, that you that you that you talk there about about creating movement and things like that um, um the, the way that society is and um the way in which um super morbidly obese people in particular are perceived you know, um, by the public and so on, you know, going and doing the kind of stuff that you might, uh, that might be recommended by personal trainers, um, going out and just walking to the shops and back might actually be something that the individuals are embarrassed of. So I'm guessing that, that in addition to the other things that you do with these people that we'll explore um, and that I'll be asking you about shortly, also things like working on their self-esteem and their ability to assert themselves in the world um, um, is, is, is important as well, is it? It's really important because people who are in that category, and, and actually even if people aren't so overweight, they tend to feel that everything is their fault, they're, they're rubbish, um, 
that nobody likes them, that people are looking at them. And, and let's face it, when someone is extremely large, people are looking at them. They, they mm. really are. So self-esteem is incredibly important. Yeah. And a, a bit of a thick skin, you know, I'm out there doing it. You know, I am walking and, and getting on and actually having that self-belief that they can do these things. Yeah. It, it, it's a tough thing. It really is. Because you, you can't help but look at... If you saw someone who was 35 stone, you know, you would look at them, wouldn't you? You, you won't yeah. look at them with, with any unpleasant thoughts. But we don't actually, fortunately in the UK, we don't see it that often. Although I do believe we're going to see it more and more. So yeah. sympathy to a certain extent, but not too much. Sure. And so, and, and I mean, with, with all of that in mind... Um, um, can you give us some ideas of, of, you know, some of the central components, for example, of the way in which you would approach this? Um, um, obviously, obviously, you know, an individual is an individual and there'll be need to veer off and, and treat them as um, um, an individual. But what about, um, you know, are, are there any kind of core or central components that tend to feature more often than others um, within, within your treatment plans and within the way in which you approach these people? There are a lot of commonalities, actually. Obviously, the individualism comes in, but there's a lot of commonalities. The first thing I want to do is why. What is their why? Um, very much like we do in standard therapy, um, what do you want to achieve? How do you know you've got it? But, but this is why. Why do you want to reduce your weight? Why are you doing this? Yeah. And getting that why is really important because we are going to need to go back to that. Yeah. All the time we're going to need to remember what that why is. Um, generally, when they get to this state, um, it's because they, they could well die. <laughs> it, it really yeah. is as serious as that. Or that they're, they're, they're extremely ill. Uh, so the, the why is extremely important. Um, I do a motivation or annoyance review, really. Yeah. Um, it's, it's easier with someone in this category. What, what is it you don't like? So coming away from that rather than how motivated are you? Because the self-belief is something that's really quite hard. People really don't believe it's such a task, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it's a task to lose a stone if you wanted to. But to think that you've got to lose 17 or 18 stone, that's massive, isn't it? Yeah. I it, mean, I mean that's, um, that, that's more than the entire weight of, of the average person, isn't yes, it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It, it is. It is. Um, and the why, you know, are you self-motivated or is it doctor's orders? Now, this is where it was slightly different. If somebody came to me as a smoker and said, my doctor said <coughs> I to stop smoking, but I don't really want to, I probably wouldn't work with them. Mm. But I do work with people in this category because it really is, you know, some stages of life or death. But they are self-motivated. They are motivated to do something. So mm. I need to work on that motivation. We do some goal setting very short term to start with because it's, that's interesting well, so, so, so you get the, the opportunity to highlight the success and the progress that they're making yes. in very real terms in, in very real terms because I suppose that 17 18 stone to to reduce your weight by could could potentially take take you know a fairly lengthy period of time and that lengthy period of time may not be all that compelling Exactly. It will take you probably two or three years. I mean, mm. It depends whether you're male or female. A male will probably reduce his weight quicker than a female will. That's just the way of the world, unfortunately. That's interesting. But, mm. Yeah, it's going to be um, a good couple of years. 
but you, you're going to get a lot of improvement in that time. So you're going to get to a stage where, um, and this is the word that they tend to use, you're going to get to a stage where you're normal, normally obese. You're going to get out of the super morbidly obese into super into morbidly obese and then just obese. Yeah, people, <laughs> people aspire to be obese. <laughs> <laughs> Which is crazy. Crazy. You know, yeah, yeah, I'm working my way towards being just yeah. obese. Exactly, exactly. So we have short-term goals. And the short-term goals are very um, simple, like being able to breathe a little bit better. Um, yeah. Because you're, you're going to get a lot of fat that goes around the neck. Um, so even when you're talking, if, if you've ever spoken to someone who is extremely overweight, sometimes they sound a bit breathy, don't they? Mm. And that's because they've got an awful lot of fat sort of around the, the neckline. Mm. Um, so whatever that short-term goal might be, so it might be getting out of a particular chair or being able to sit in another chair or it's something quite small, something that's really going to help them. Yeah. And, and that you can get those quite quickly. Then we have a mid-term goal. And I do ask them if they've got a long-term goal, but we, we don't really dwell on that. It's... Um, what, what, what would you really like to do or go back to doing? Because yeah. a lot of people might have put on weight and, and, and know exactly what it's like to live a life at a, a, a good, healthy weight. Other people have no idea at all. So it's a goal. I do a goal for every week. And the other thing that we agree on, that it's going to be a long-term relationship. Right. We, we can't do this in a short time. However much I want to, there's no quick fixes. There's no... Um, I, I don't give nutritional advice. I can only tell them, you know, I, I sometimes to say... Seek, to seek it out. To, to seek it out. And that's um, something that I get them to do. So we then do some planning. You know, what food plan are they going to do? Um, do some research. Talk to their nutritionist. Talk to their doctor. I have a very basic qualification in nutrition, but that's not good enough to do this. And I, I wouldn't feel I wanted to do it. Mm. Um, and what movement can we do? There's loads and loads of things on YouTube or other places where you can simply sit in a chair and waggle your arms about. I mean, that's enough to start with. It mm. really is. And then we start to work on the, the psychological training. And yeah. I, I call it training so that they can start to think and change their language. I always use the term mind your language because it makes people smile. Mm. <laughs> mind your language. That. Um, looking forward, getting excited about doing this. Mm. It's not a chore. People see, um, even a short-term diet, even if you only want to drop seven pounds, oh my goodness, that's so boring, I've got to go on a diet. Like, get excited about it, mm. because this is going to change your life. Yeah. And, and keep that excitement going. That yeah. What you're doing is a really good thing that you're doing for yourself. And constant encouragement. Mm. And I am, I'm empathetic, but I don't think I'm sympathetic. And, right. and that has changed quite a lot. Mm, mm. <laughs> I, I, so so how, how specifically has that changed? I mean, what, what, what do you do in actuality? Well, I've noticed, I, I have actually lost quite a lot of weight myself. So Yeah, I mean, you, your own story is incredible. Yeah, I, I, I do walk the walk. So yeah. I, I wasn't in the category of super morbid obesity, but I think, you know, one extra wafer for the mint and I might have been. Sure. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I can walk my walk. And I do tell them that. Um, I have to be a bit careful with that sometimes because people tend to want to get me on their side and say, well, you know how difficult it is, don't you? Well, right. yeah, I do know that it's no, no walk in the park, but it, it's not that difficult when you put your mind to it. So I don't take any excuses. Mm. I, I will not take an excuse. 
you can do it if you really, really want to and you want to make that effort. Mm. So yes, I can sympathize in the extent that I do know what it's like to have your mobility reduced. I do know what it's like to not be able to find clothes to fit or to feel absolute rubbish when you're going out and everybody looks great next to you. But I also know that you can get off your backside and you can do something about it. And it is you. You, know, you are the one that puts the food in your mouth. Mm. No one is force feeding you. <laughs> so I, I am a bit tough with that. Um, mm. and, and people do recognize it. They, they understand that that's, that's the way. I'm not rude to anyone. That, that serves no purpose. No. You know, there's no point saying to people, you know, you are really, really fat. They know that. They but, there's a, but there's a firmness. There is an absolute firmness that you have to take responsibility for this. You know, there might have been something in their past that has made them become to, to eat for comfort or something like that. Um, in my experience, most of the people I work with simply have eaten too much. And, and it becomes a vicious circle that you go home after a bad day, perhaps, or, or if you're housebound, you've got nothing else to do. So you eat. Mm. So it is a vicious circle. So, but you have to get out of that vicious circle and understand that you are the only one that can do that. It is you, and you must take that responsibility and commit to taking that responsibility. Yeah. And commit to, do, to commit to do that. Mm. Life isn't going to change unless they do something about it. And yeah, I will say that. I'm absolutely direct with that. Mm. Mm. And um, um, the... the, the... The kinds of interventions um, um, which which tend to be quite useful are these things which involve the, the way in which they perceive themselves as well, both physiologically and 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 psychologically. I mean, you, you talked about some of the overriding characteristics and psychological characteristics there that uh, you know there's a lot of self blame, for example, um, um, even some guilt. There's a lot of kind of running themselves down and being. Um, and perhaps unfairly critical. Yes, um, there's an awful lot of shame as well. People, right. people are shamed. Um, so it, it is hugely about building up self-esteem. So I look at things that they have achieved in their past. Mm. Um, and, and everybody has achieved something. They'll always say, well, I can't do that, I can't do that. But you know, even something as simple as knowing the way to get to a particular place, you know, you're confident that you know how to get to that place. So yes, you're confident. Mm. So mm. sometimes it's as simple as breaking down really, really small things. Yeah. Um, the, the original lady that I worked with, um, who who thought she had agoraphobia, she was extremely interested in photography. So right. the thing that I got her to do was to go to her back door and take a photograph of the weather every day. Yeah. So that she was getting out and actually doing something. Eventually, we were moving her further and further to the end of the garden, to the front garden, until she was eventually going out and taking a photo. And and she emailed me that photo every day. So there's there's quite it's quite intense. Yeah. There's quite a lot of work that you get. You're constantly looking after people. Yeah. The self esteem that I work on, um, and self belief that you absolutely can do that. Yeah. But breaking it down. Um, yes, of course, we all know that you've got that goal at the end to lose what 17 stone or whatever it is. But to lose two or three pounds is, is a win. And okay, it's not going to show, <laughs> but it is a win. Lots and lots of two pounds make a difference. And be proud of everything that you do. Yeah. Take yeah. pride. Because, again, that's another thing that you get to a stage where you, you know, you're limited to what you can actually wear. 
um, you begin to not bother with doing your hair or you know you wear what you can get so you, you're not taking pride in yourself so no. again taking that step that psychological step of what can, what have I done that I can be proud of today yeah what what can I do yeah constantly yeah. planning and keep building on it keep bringing in that commitment so that every day they've got something that they're committed to do that they yeah. pledge to do another thing I ask them to do is to write a letter to themselves to be opened in a year's time mm, interesting because that's um we know it's going to be a long-term thing obviously you could do a shorter term one if you ever wanted to yeah and i am coming up to the year with quite a lot of people next month we'll be opening them in fact only about three weeks time we'll be opening some of those letters um a letter to yourself in a year's time of where you want to be what you want to say to yourself in a year's time so you know congratulate yourself or whatever it is i, I have no idea what they've got in these letters yeah <laughs> But people seem to enjoy doing that. It can yeah. be hard, but I think you know it's, it's going to be really interesting. And I know that when I open some of them, they're going to be fantastic. They really are because yeah. we've seen some really nice results. Does that does that give them some kind of um, means of attempting to hold themselves accountable as well? Yes, yes yeah. it absolutely does. Um, I did it. Um, I, I took the idea because I've done it myself. I wrote a letter to myself um, again to um, actually my year is up, but I haven't opened it yet. I'll probably open it later. Now I'm thinking about it. Yeah, good, good. Um, it very much is. <coughs> in a year's time, I wanted to have done these things. Mm. So I wanted to have, you know, done a half marathon moonwalk. I wanted to have done these things, and it, I think um, from what I remember, what I wrote, I have achieved virtually all of those. But there was an element in me of thinking my goodness, if I open that and I haven't done it, um, I, I probably would have felt ashamed, actually. I would have been very, very cross with myself. Mm. So, yes, it is, it is about taking absolute accountability. Mm. And I remind them of that, that you have made this. You know, you are someone in that situation. They could well die. I mean, it really is as bad as that. Mm. You, you will get fatter and fatter and your, your organs start to break down. You imagine the, the fat around you. It's a horrible thought, isn't it? It really you, is. you absolutely have to take that responsibility because okay yes you can have surgery but surgery isn't the be all and end all and you're not going to have to be able to have surgery if you're really huge or you've got certain other comorbidities mm. and anesthesia is um is better than it ever was for people in, in that state that condition but you know it's still not great is it no no absolutely <laughs> still a huge risk. absolutely it, it really is so if, if you can take that step yourself, um, I do a lot of work with anchors, so with confidence and pride, reinforcing self-belief. I teach self-hypnosis right from the start Great. so that um, they can imagine themselves doing things. And a mm. lot of the imagining is, is about getting up and just walking sometimes mm. um, just being proud about being walking i suppose I, as well i suppose as well you know i'm, I'm developing a skill such as self-hypnosis is something that can contribute um i'm you know something that's prevalent in my own work um is is self-efficacy you know boosting self-efficacy and having people believe that they are capable just just an inherent part of learning self-hypnosis as a skill is very much something which you know leads people to believe that they are more capable that they're yes. you know able to to do stuff to do things and i, I have found I, i've worked with people who um have had anorexia in the past and i found that people like that they are so focused on doing what they do well 
mm. uh, focusing on not eating in this particular case, that actually they're incredibly good at hypnosis because they can do that focus. Yeah. So you, you can sort of turn that round that, you know, you have done, you have actually done very well in making yourself that big. Because mm. it's actually quite hard to do that, isn't it? It's hard to maintain as well. I'm guessing. I'm guessing, you know, to, to you know, you you would have to take on board a certain amount of of calories and food and so on in order to maintain the size. Absolutely, you're you're taking on something like eight or nine thousand calories a day. Yeah. And not moving at all. Flipping heck. I mean, it, it's hard work, isn't it? Yeah. So I do um, ask them to do a lot of journaling. Um, sometimes they're just lines. Sometimes they're heartbreaking actually mm. they really are mm. um, food diaries um, I take them with a pinch of salt to be honest and as I say I'm not a nutritionist so I, I don't really look like that but I, again it's accountability mm. and other times um, and, and helping them to heighten their awareness of, of their you know, what, what they're consuming and everything else because you, you very often eat mindlessly so yeah yeah what then what their patterns are and my, mindfulness is very important yeah. Um, their emotions when they're eating, if they were bored, if they were tired, if they were... So just looking at that, it, it, was it a mouth food where they were really hungry? Mm. Mm. Was it um, just because it was there, that type of thing? Yeah. Um, and also, it does identify who... I asked them who they were with. And it identifies if you've got a feeder in your life, mm. which can very often happen. I do something I call a reverse food diary. And what that is, is I ask people to list what they haven't eaten. Mm. So if they've turned something down, so somebody offers them a slice of birthday cake or something, and they choose not to eat it, yeah. so I, I ask them to say in their head, I can have this, but I'm choosing not to. So it's, it's not that they're depriving themselves, they're choosing not to have it. Yeah. So I ask them to do a reverse food diary, so all of the things that they have chosen not to eat. And that's really interesting because mm. it actually is more of a positive thing. They can look at it and think, oh, yeah, actually, it could have been so much worse <laughs> or aren't I good? Yeah. So I found that really, really effective. Yeah, that's, that's really useful. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people that are um, clinicians out there will, 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 will perhaps consider using and employing something like that. I think that's um, um, really interesting. Um, it works well. It really does. And people actually, they, they find it as a sort of sense of pride mm. that they've been able to say no to something. Mm. When we um, get to, yeah, oh, yeah, no, no, carry on. When we get to the third session, and it really depends on how often I've seen them. I, I like to see them once a week for the first few, certainly for the first two or three months. Mm. But then we can reduce it a little bit because obviously we are talking about cost as well. Yeah. Um, financial cost. Yeah. Um, I noticed that the third session is where motivation can flag a bit because they realise, the realisation that they've been setting that this really is a long-term thing and this could be quite hard. Yeah. This is where the why is really, really important. You keep bringing back that why. Why are you doing this? Why does this matter to you? Mm. Um, and, and get that excitement going. Now, on the third session, it's, I find this a quite important session. The first two sessions, I'll have been taking note of all their excuses. And there will be a lot of excuses. You know, I have to eat this because. I have to eat this because we go out and have social occasions or people bring me things in and it would be hurtful if I didn't eat it. That, yeah. That's the thing. So I'll have been taking a note of all their excuses. 
session three, I bring back all their excuses, their reasons. They call them their reasons. Yeah. <laughs> all their reasons why they are in the condition that they're in. And then we go over them. Are they reasons or excuses? It's a bit like, you know, truth or bust, truth or bust. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> excuse, reason, excuse, reason, excuse, reason. And we go over them. This is where I start to get really tough. You know, really tell it as it is. That is an excuse. You'll make yeah. an excuse there. That's not a reason. That's an excuse. And then we work out how they can get around those. I mean, they, mm. they might have to. They might have to be tough with their family members. And I'll, I'll talk more about that because that does happen. And I would possibly do a Dickens pattern at this stage. Um, it's I don't find Dickens is as useful with supermorbidly obese as you'd, you'd imagine it would be, because mm. they already know. What yeah, doing. I suppose I suppose as well. You know, they're 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 in they're almost in that worst case scenario, aren't they? They pretty much are. You know, yeah. it doesn't get much worse. I mean, it does, but obviously that's that doesn't yeah. thinking of. But they they are there. They really are. They don't need to be told. And the, the future is too far away to, to give that ideal future. Mm. It, it's such a long way away that it doesn't really work. Uh, likewise, um, a body sculpt type of technique doesn't work early on because it's sort of, well, really? You know, that's just too much. Yeah. For me. I, I can't even begin to... It doesn't to... seem realistic or achievable. It, it's absolutely not. So it sounds as if the, the early interventions are quite simplistic, but it's really about the self-esteem that you absolutely can do it. Mm. Those anchors, that confidence, reinforcing belief and resolve. Help keep them on track with, with, with all the other things they're doing as well. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And the understanding. So, um, and beyond then, we'd start to work on habits because a lot of these things are habit. Yeah. You know, at 11 o'clock, I have a packet of chocolate biscuits. Yeah. And then that really does happen. I was with a client once and I asked her what she was having for lunch and she said that she was going to have a ham sandwich. And as it happened, I was going to have a ham sandwich with some salad that day. She was going to have the whole loaf <laughs> of ham. I shouldn't laugh. I, I know, but. You see, this is actually one of the things that does upset me. People have no idea how to cook. Mm. Yeah, you know, I was taught to cook at school. I'm of the generation that was. People aren't now. And when I was um, at that day with, with Jesse, who incidentally is a really lovely man and really does believe in the mind, uh, how the mind works, mm. um, he did a meditation which was um, basically Michael Yapko's mind's eye. Mm. But he didn't know that. Mm. <laughs> it's really, really interesting. But a nutritionist had prepared our food for the day. And it was delicious, you know, fish mm. and rare beef and things like that. Really, really good food. And most of the people said, ugh, what's that? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember watching one of those documentaries on a series, you know, um, something you know, um, where, about, about people that were um, attending a specialist clinic um, and they were, you know, a half a ton each or something like that, these people. And um, uh, one of the people um, that w was one of the one of these really obese guys um, was saying to the doctor, I don't understand why I'm not losing any weight. You know, I, I, I only eat fruit for breakfast, for example. And the doctor's turning around and saying, yes, but, you know, 16 oranges for breakfast is probably too much. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm, I'm, exactly. I, and I remember, you know, laughing out loud at that notion. Um, um, but again, you know, education was incredibly important to these people. It, it is absolutely about education. And, and I, I keep going back to it, but about responsibility. Um, I've become slightly involved in a, a charity that helps obesity problems. And, and their heart's absolutely in the right place. 
but I sometimes look at things and I just think, but you're not taking responsibility for yourself. It's the national health don't really do this for us and the national health don't do that. You know, the national health can help us, the national health here in the UK, obviously, they can mm. help certain things, but you are the person that's eating. You, you need to help yourself. Yeah. Um, I direct my clients to places where they can find some resources um, books, um, recipe books that will help them. Um, there, there's quite a lot of um, biographies, autobiographies of people who have lost an awful lot of weight. And some of them are very, very well worth reading. There's one, I can't remember what it's called, but it's a, by a chap called Charlie Waldup, who was the fattest man in Britain. And he lost, um, I think, 25 stone naturally just by... Right. And it's a really, really interesting book. And he's a lovely man. And he he will always um, talk to you if you want to ask him something. He's he's a really, really nice man. Um, And I I use people like that to show that you absolutely can do these things. And Charlie makes no secret of the fact that it was hard work and it's still hard. So keeping that self-belief, lots of problem solving. We look at the secondary benefits as well. Mm. Uh, there are some secondary benefits, believe it or not, of being super large. You mm. might not have to go to work. People do everything for you because you can't do things for yourself. Um, there are lots of changes that can happen, um, changes in relationships. Sometimes the clients might find that um, there's a lot of jealousy from their husband and they might or, or partner, and they might try and feed them because they don't want them to be thin. Some people have found that actually they're not truly happy in their relationship and they've settled because that's the best they think they can do. Yeah. So it's quite a, it's a big change. It's not just about losing body weight. It can be about losing other things. And that's something that I, I don't prepare them for as such, you know, or oh, you might lose your partner, but to understand that there are a lot of things that are going to change with this. Yeah. People will look at you differently. Yeah. If you're not keen on men looking at you in an approving fashion or not aware, you know, not used to it, you might find it threatening. Mm. Mm. Um, I, I'm using women as an example because I do actually only have one male client at the moment in this group, so yeah. I know more about women. Yeah. Yeah. We keep going back to the why. And, and the goal setting, um, maybe halfway through, we'd look at a long-term goal, um, what you can do. And I actually been out there and done things with some of these people. I, I went and did a 5K run with some of the people the other day. Um, we had a fantastic time. It was really, really good. Great. To, to actually go out and achieve something, because it, you know, it blows you away when you've done something that perhaps you could barely walk a year ago. And you might not have run the whole thing, but you've walked it and you've, you've done it in a decent time and you've got out there and actually been with people who were doing that. And it it it, yeah. it was like a sort of osmosis. Yeah, yeah, you, absolutely. You start to do more and more and more. Yeah. It, it does get harder. That That is the thing. And that that's what um, got me on to sort of contacting Jesse in the first place. Sort of halfway through, you could possibly have lost, say, seven or eight stone and it doesn't show at all. Yeah. <laughs> there is no outward um, yeah. sign. Yeah. So you, you need to keep that momentum going and look at actually what in that seven stone, what has changed. You can probably breathe easier. Your blood pressure will have probably gone down. If you're on medication, your medication might have gone down. All those things that you have achieved. Yeah. Thinking about what you haven't yet achieved or what doesn't look like this or what doesn't look like that. The other thing I encourage is photographs every couple of weeks as well. 
Ah, oh, right, good, yeah. Side and front photos, because you might not think that anything has changed, but my goodness, it has. And usually people see it in their faces. Yeah. It's, that's almost the first thing to change. Yeah. And it's a wonderful thing to do. You know, sometimes if I don't see people for three weeks, I notice it. And it, it you know, it blows me away some days that people really, really get on and do this. And they yeah. get it. They get it. Yeah. They understand that it is about their minds. What's the kind of... What's the kind of prevalence with this issue these days? I mean, I mean, um, um, is this is this common? Do you think? And do you think that you know, um, hypnotherapists will, will start to see more people of these kind of categories, um, um, or, or 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 is it still quite rare? Um, I think we are going to see more of it. Mm. Um, the uh, my my normal general weight loss clients are definitely getting bigger with, mm. without a doubt. That's interesting. That uh, they they really are. Um, and if you look around, I, I, there's a lot about fat shaming, isn't there? About people saying you mustn't shame fat people, and perhaps it's a yeah. medical condition. Well, I, I, I posted an article um, from the Daily Mail, of all places, um, um, just last week, in fact, that, that was citing um, a case study and a piece of research that, that suggested that, 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 that too much shaming actually can have a detrimental effect upon people's um, ability to reduce their weight. I absolutely agree that because that um, what I call the sod it factor comes in. You just think, oh, well, sod you. Yeah. I'll, I'll just eat anyway. Yeah. And you do it almost for a comfort. Mm. But, you know, it absolutely doesn't work. But on the reverse, I, I often see particularly younger people, sort of teenagers, 20s, that really have no shame in being fat. You know, it really doesn't bother them. Mm. You think, okay, you might be fairly healthy now. You can buy clothes in larger sizes that you didn't used to be able to buy. You can buy nice clothes. You might have to pay a little bit more for them, but you can get the clothes. You know, in recent times you couldn't. Mm. Um, so I, I just think that some days people are just going to wake up and suddenly realise, oh my goodness, that extra three stone has suddenly turned into an extra ten stone. Mm. Because mm. people aren't really, they don't have the food education. I feel very, very strongly about that. Mm. Food is everywhere. And, and a lot of it is rubbish, isn't it? People mm. don't know how to cook. They don't know how to cook fresh, good food. I, I absolutely believe that it's going to get worse. I really do. Mm. And people often have that idea in their heads that, well, I can just have surgery. They don't understand that surgery can cause an awful lot of problems. It really mm. Mm. It's a very, very sad thing. Yeah, yeah. I, um... It makes it makes me very sad because I know that it can be done, and when you conquer your mind, or you have someone to help you conquer your mind, you absolutely can do it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, 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 I could just ask you about this non-stop and just crack on. Um, um, we're 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 getting to the stage where we're out of time now, Lindsay. Um, um. Thank you so much. What we'll have to do is um, have you back on a future episode and um, I'm coming here about, you know, how, how you've been getting on with these, um, um, with, with this project that you're working on and also, you know, the kind of progress that these, this group of super morbidly obese people that you're currently working with, you know, um, updating us on their progress. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, at the moment, um, some of the group have done fantastically well, really, really well. They're, a few of them are veering on losing the eight or nine stone. We've got a couple that haven't done so well, but we're, we're still working on it. But mm. well, I'm we'll, really looking forward to it. Yeah, we'll be keeping our fingers crossed for you and them. Um, um, 
so much information there for those of you listening, um, um, for those of you that, that, that perhaps um, encounter or do work with or are going to be working with super morbidly obese. Lindsay, thank you so much um, for, for sharing uh, so generously um, and we'll look forward to welcoming you back to Hypnosis Weekly again in the future. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for asking me. Pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed that discussion. Lots of very useful information there. A link to Lindsay's website and also the Clark Hull quote that she offered up in the earlier interview are all over at the Hypnosis Weekly website. Now on to this week's Hypnosis Fact of the Week. The fact is simple and short this week. The ability to experience hypnotic phenomena does not indicate gullibility or weakness. That's our fact. One dictionary definition of gullibility is that easily deceived or cheated. Back in 1969, research by Barber showed that the ability to experience hypnotic phenomena does not equate to and does not indicate gullibility or a weakness. And there are a number of explanations for this. One that is also part of Barber's extensive body of work, it relates to and pertains to the fact that hypnosis requires collaboration and effort and expectancy on the part of the subject. And these are quite clearly contrary to the notion of gullibility or weakness. If you want a reminder of our ongoing competition, do go and listen to either episode eight or nine of Hypnosis Weekly and keep tuned for me using that special word, or perhaps I've used it already today. In our next edition, I'll be welcoming my friend, fellow tutor at my college and talented hypnotherapist, Steve Baxter. He'll be joining me. I'll be interviewing him and we'll be discussing a great deal. I have many more exciting guests here in future weeks. In particular, we shall be welcoming some very impressive academics and scholars to Hypnosis Weekly very soon too. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating, and above all, remaining friends. And to repeat, all the references made in the discussions along with related links are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions, so do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else and really help us reach the hypnosis field. Thanks go to my amazing friend, Lindsay Shepherd. Thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.